When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us. This is the NCAA Tournament episode of the podcast. I have on Sam Vecini of CBS Sports to talk about the prospect side of it. I like to give this an NBA twist because I consider this an NBA podcast. So we talk for about an hour 10 on the prospects that are in this draft and specifically the ones to watch the next couple of weeks. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, no, I'm always happy to join the people over at Real GM. Uh, you know, real quick shout out to your boy Jonathan Charks uh, g- getting over at the Ringer. That's it's pretty awesome, isn't it? Absolutely, I'm thrilled for him. It's yeah, it's a great opportunity. Absolutely, me too. I shot him a congratulations yesterday. I mean, I mean, like working with Bill Simmons is a dream of mine. So, like, uh, for him to get to, get that opportunity, I am just so happy for him. It, it seems like he is going to do well there, and I'm sure he is. He's a really smart guy. Uh, knows a lot about the NBA. Knows a lot about basketball, and I, th- I think that that's going to be a great hire for them. Yeah, it's it's exciting. We John and I actually talked about the draft a couple weeks ago, and as as more of an NBA focused podcast. One mm-hmm. of the, where I thought would be a, a a little bit of a different place to start is some players that are NBA relevant that people who listen to this might want to watch early because they might not last long in the tournament. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. I would say uh, one team I think is Providence for sure. Uh, I do think that they will get past USC in their first round game, but you know you never really know with that team because you never know what you're going to get because their supporting cast around Chris Dunn and Ben Bentel is so non-existent in a lot of ways sometimes. So I, I would watch Providence for one. Chris Dunn is the number five player on my draft board. I've Ben Bentel right now. And I'm going through all of this. We should couch all of this in, like, the fact that these these numbers can change. Like, if I yell out a ranking, uh, they will probably change by tomorrow. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm kind of using this podcast as a way for me to go through all of the information, distill it, and, uh, you know, write this thing up for tomorrow. So uh, I have Ben Bentel right now at number 49 on my board. I, I like him a lot. I think that uh, his... Uh, ability to step away and shoot and his strength inside and his ability to run the floor. The people at Providence say he's actually faster in a full court sprint than Chris Dunn is. It's really interesting to me as a prospect. The question with him is uh, his height, obviously. He's listed at 6'9". I talked to a scout that said he thinks he actually is 6'9", but I'm not sure I buy that. He does have long arms, but I think you might be talking about more of like a Brandon Bass situation than a, you know, like a potential top 20 pick situation. And then Chris Dunn is obviously Chris Dunn. I'm, I'm sure that your listeners are familiar with what he can bring to the table. Simply put, he's one of the best two-way players in all of college basketball. He is a terrific defensive player now, the two-time Big East Defensive Player of the Year. He is an awesome offensive player who somehow finds a way to produce in that 
Providence offense that, uh, you know, has really struggled to space the floor this year because of the surrounding players around Dunn. And it's really just a, a testament to him that this Providence team is even as far as it is right now. And Gary Payton II at Oregon State is another example of that. They might make it past VCU, but I don't think mm-hmm. they're making it out of the first weekend. Yeah, no, I mean, it would be a surprise. Oregon State gets Oklahoma in that second round game. That's kind of a really tough matchup for them. Uh, But Gary Payton is another guy, I would say. Payton uh, is a really good defensive guard. This is going to be a game uh, against VCU that's really interesting for him, right? Because, you know, VCU is a high pressure defense uh, that's really going to pressure him and really force him to make good decisions with the ball. But it's also an offense that can really kind of show off his strengths defensively. They really tend to struggle offensively whenever you kind of get a guy in their face, VCU does, and Peyton and the rest of that backcourt, really. I mean, Duvivier especially is another really good defensive player. You know, they're going to just go right into VCU's face and try and force them into bad decisions offensively, and I think they're capable of doing that. So I would look for Peyton to have a big defensive game as well as a big offensive game against Oregon State. And along those same lines, if they win that matchup, he could make himself a lot of money on the weekend, If he could, even if they, in a losing effort, if he can do a decent job against Buddy Heald. I would agree with that. Uh, another guy that I think that you should watch, and you should really pay attention to this matchup in general, is Baylor. Uh, Baylor actually has to go up to Providence to play Yale. Which is ridiculous. Yeah, you, don't get me started on the NCAA tournament committee. They did uh, the worst job seeding this tournament that I've ever seen in my life. Uh, you can listen to the Eye on College Basketball podcast if you want to hear a little bit more detail on that. I went into like full detail on how like both objectively, like by objective measures based on the guidelines that the committee is supposed to adhere to, they screwed this up and by subjective measures like on measuring teams like Tulsa getting into the tournament. Like they totally messed all of this up. Having said that though, Baylor and Yale is a really interesting one because Yale has a kid named Justin Sears. Uh, he's six foot eight, like 210 pound power forward, who is a really, really good athlete who's going to be a tough matchup for Torian Prince. I think that Yale can actually win that game. So you, if you want to see Torian Prince, who I think is a first round pick, uh, I would watch that Baylor Yale game because you're going to get a really good test of what Prince can do uh, against a guy like Justin Sears, who I think will be on a summer league roster this year. Yeah, that's a definitely good one to consider. I was also thinking about the Seton Hall-Gonzaga game. Just Gonzaga, First of all, as somebody who's only casually watched college basketball this year, Gonzaga being an 11 seed was shocking, though I know they've been disappointing this year. But Witcher and um, Sabonis will be worth watching in the first round. Yeah, I mean, Wilcher and Sabonis, this is going to be... I've kind of been like wondering how Kyle Wilcher is even going to play in this game. Because... He's going to be fine offensively like he always is, but what Seton Hall does better than a lot of teams in this field is they kind of pick a matchup. For instance, in this game, it will be Wilcher in screens. They're going to basically screen and roll every time with Wilcher's guy, with Isaiah Whitehead, who has been one of the best players in college basketball over the last two months. That's not an exaggeration. It actually might be underselling it. He might have been the best player in college basketball over the last two months. He has been unbelievable. He went from, in uh, I want to say it was in early January, I looked this up, he went from being 867th out of 877 players in true shooting percentage that had taken at least 100 field goal attempts that it, to that point in the year. 
to now being 10th in Ken Palm's algorithm that kind of measures player of the year. So just statistically, he's been way better. And if you look at what he's doing on the floor, it's remarkable. I mean, confidence-wise, he's pulling up from like 25 feet and banging home threes. He is a ridiculous player off the dribble. He's one of the best tough shot makers that you'll find in college basketball. He's still, you know, it's not a sure thing that he would go in the first round right now by any means. He's only had in his two years there really two months of useful basketball, but those two months were unbelievable. If you look at the numbers, though, over those two months, the turnovers are still there. The uh, the shooting inside of the arc still isn't great. I want to say that it only rose from like 37% up to 40%, which is a scary mark for a lot of teams. A lot of teams like to see guys uh, be up around that, you know, like 45 to 50% mark for the two-point range, even if you're a guard. So uh, it's tough to say what his prospects are like, but if Seton Hall can go on a run here, which I really think that they're capable of, really, he could end up being a first-round pick this year, and it wouldn't be crazy. He's going to be probably in my top 45 or so whenever I get my uh, get my update uh, posted tomorrow. Wow, that's interesting. And also, the, sh- the potential for a showcase game against Utah would be would be fascinating for him. Yes, it would be, because for all of the things I just said about Gonzaga, you know, they're not going to be able to really defend them in the pick and roll. If they get past Gonzaga, which I don't think is a sure thing by any means, uh, Seton Hall's a really good defensive team. Seton Hall's going to be able to punish them offensively, but Gonzaga can really just knock down shots and can beat anyone on any given night. And plus, Mark Few has actually won. For as much as Mark Few gets crap for his lack of Final Fours and his lack of, you know, quote-unquote NCAA tournament success, Gonzaga's actually gotten to the second round, the round of 32, each of the last seven years, I think. So this isn't a sure thing by any means, but if you get to Utah, who I think does have a pretty interesting matchup with Fresno State in the first round, but assuming Utah wins that, you know, you do get this showcase game where Isaiah Whitehead isn't going to be able to do what he does against Gonzaga, just like, kind of pinpointing a weakness and taking those guys off the dribble against Utah because Utah covers pick and rolls really well. They cover defensively all over the place really well because Jakob Pertl's such a good athlete in space. Uh, Kyle Kuzma and Brakat Chapman are both really athletic four, like kind of stretch four guys that uh, they can use to make sure and kind of cut down those little spaces with Seton Hall. I do really like the Seton Hall team. I mean, they've beaten three, uh, beaten Xavier and Villanova three times in the last two weeks, I I think. So this is a team that can really make a run, but Utah is a tough matchup for them, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that could be one of the more fun games in the second round. And before we get back into it, I wanted to say a quick word about SeatGeek. As a former ticket broker buying and selling tickets all over North America, I can appreciate the value of having a great ticket site, both for purchasing tickets and for selling them. And SeatGeek is an amazing resource that I wish I had back then because It is an aggregator, so you don't have to worry about looking multiple places for tickets. You can look in one place with SeatGeek and you're good. Also, since they do their all-in pricing with all the fees, you don't get surprised by that. And also, you can compare apples to apples. So if you, you you see a set of tickets, you don't have to worry about them jumping and changing the value. And also, everything is given a deal score, so you can tell whether it's a good deal or a bad deal. It's another nice factor when you're making your decision. And... I'm really proud to have them as a sponsor, and one of the other benefits for Real GM Radio listeners is that you can get a $20 rebate on your first purchase. What you have to do is you have to download the free SeatGeek app, you go to the settings tab, and one of the options there is add a promo code. The promo code is REALGM, R-E-A-L-G-M, all caps, no spaces, 
And then when you make your first purchase, SeatGeek will send you $20. So you get to try this great new app. You get to experience it. I'm looking at it for various things that are upcoming. I was, I ended up not going to the Bruce Springsteen concert, but I was using SeatGeek to look at that. And I haven't decided yet if I'm going to try to go to the NCAA tournament in Anaheim. But it is wonderful for everything of that of that ilk and pretty much any other ilk. And you can download the app, try the Real GM code, and hopefully you like it as much as I do. Another guy, I'm not sure he fits in this, we'll have to see, is Demetrius Jackson, Notre Dame. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, I don't think they get to the second weekend, but uh, I do think they probably get past both Michigan and Tulsa. Those teams are relatively weak. Uh, I would not have put in either team. I would not have put either team in the tournament, but that does set up an interesting matchup for Jackson if they do get to the second round, uh, regardless, because West Virginia and Stephen F. Austin right now are your number one and number two teams nationally in defensive turnover rate. They force turnovers more often on defense than any other two teams in the country. So no matter what, you're going to get a high-pressure situation for Demetrius Jackson to try and show off what he's capable of. If it's West Virginia, you're talking more of a you know full-court press, press Virginia, high high crazy pressure situation where they just want to get you in transition. Stephen F. Austin's a little bit more deliberate with it. Uh, they do want to force turnovers. They will use a little bit more full court pressure uh, than they have in the past, but still they are more of a half court high pressure defensive team and they force turnovers that way. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what Demetrius Jackson can do. I'm trying to think of some other guys that could actually lose early. DeAndre Bembry actually has a really good matchup at St. Joe's with Cincinnati. Cincinnati has a couple of really athletic wings who can match up with him. Bembry right now is right around that second round area. Cal, I think, has a pretty interesting matchup, actually, with Hawaii. I mean, I don't really want to get into this whole thing, but Cal is going through a coaching situation where they just had to fire an assistant yesterday for his involvement in a sexual harassment uh, investigation, so to speak. I don't know all of the details, and, you know, the assistant is going to fight it, so I don't know if you know, this wind up kind of going away or what, what the deal is going to be. But, you know, that's not the kind of situation you want to deal with on the eve of the NCAA tournament, so to speak. And Hawaii, uh, with Jalen Brown on the other side, has a really athletic 3-4, like, wing in Aaron Valdez who can really match up with Jalen Brown athletically in a way that a lot of guys really can't. So I think that if Jalen Brown has a good game there, that could really help him. Ivan Rabb is going to have a nice matchup with Stefan Yankovic, who is a uh, 6'11 guy who can step away and shoot threes. Just a really, really skilled player. You know, that, that's going to be a fun matchup, I think. You know, there are just so many games throughout this entire bracket, and that's before you get to, uh, you know, Monty Morris against A.J. English with Iona, you know, both those guys are potential second round picks. Who else is interesting to me? A.J. Hammonds, Nigel Hayes. Yeah, A.J. Hammonds. You know, Nigel Hayes is an interesting matchup. That's that's a really good one, too, with Pitt, because Pitt has so many guys that are about his size, right? They have Michael Young. They have Jamel Artis. Uh, you know, Ryan Luther isn't necessarily as athletic as those guys, but he's another big guy that they can throw at Hayes that's at least a little bit mobile. I think that Wisconsin wins that game because I don't think Pitt's very good. But uh, Wisconsin and Pitt is an interesting matchup for Hayes. You mentioned A.J. Hammonds. Little Rock doesn't really have anyone that can match up with Hammonds, but it's going to be interesting to me to see if he can have a just fully blown monster game because this Little Rock team is one of the best teams in the country at pressuring the ball in the backcourt. So can these Purdue guards 
have struggled a little bit throughout the season to deal with pressure. Sometimes their offense can stagnate, and the big guys who handle uh, handle the ball a lot in that offense due to post ups, or in Caleb Swanigan's case, they kind of do a do a lot with him in the high post and at the top of the key, uh, and he turns the ball over a lot, and so do the forwards. They turn the ball over a lot. Can Chris Beard and Little Rock kind of devise a defensive strategy that involves digging down on those big men and you know kind of making them handle the ball. I, I would make sure if I was Matt Painter to tell all of my big guys, you need to hold the ball high against this team because, you know, if you don't, you're going to turn the ball over like crazy. They have active hands, they're really athletic, and they're really experienced for a team, you know, is undergoing a coaching change or underwent one last offseason. We already moved past Cal Hawaii, but I, it's, I hadn't realized this and it blows my mind. Why did they make that the earliest game in Spokane when it's two teams that are as far west as you can get in the NCAA? I'm not going to pretend to know what the committee was doing. Because <laughs> like, cause even if even if you want to do the other, well, you want the other bracket to be the primetime, you know the other games because it's two pods at the same place. If you wanted the, uh, to do the other games as the late games, which makes sense. I'm not, I have no opposition to that because... Or I think Oregon's in that, and that's fine. Maryland, South Dakota State, both those teams are further east. Just put them up and have Cal have Cal Hawaii, so you don't have these teams that are playing. I mean, the Hawaii kids are going to be playing like eight a.m. their time. Is that right? Well, it's a, it's a, is it ten or eight? It's a two p.m. start, so that two p.m. means eleven Pacific, which means eight Hawaiian. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I didn't realize that actually. Yeah, that that was really bad by the committee. I don't know what they're doing, and that that kind of stuff sets up a sets up a situation where you could kind of get more variant results. Another thing to look for there, Hawaii actually has instituted a postseason ban for next season already. What? So, well, yeah, it was because. This team, it was in the middle of the season, and this team has already had such a successful run that they didn't want to punish their kids this year for, you know, things that Gib Arnold did during his era with like, oh, O2 okay. and stuff. So they instituted a ban for next season. And, you know, for guys like Yankovic and Aaron Valdez that are juniors, this is going to be their only chance to play in the NCAA tournament. And, I mean, already Roger Bobbitt uh, and the other seniors, this is their last chance. So I think the urgency there might be a little bit higher for Hawaii. One thing that, as somebody who's attended a fair amount of NCAA tournament games, because when I went to college, that I always pay attention to is also the kind of the fan dynamics that are in play. And one of my favorite ones with that is going to be in in the second round where – in the Oklahoma City Regional, you're going to have the winner of Oregon State and VCU facing Oklahoma, and so you're thinking, oh, that's a huge advantage for Oklahoma. Except that the game on the other side of the bracket in the same arena, which means the same fans stay, is Texas-Texas A&M, probably. So all <laughs> of those fans hate the crap out of Oklahoma, so it might actually be even more than a 50-50. I think it could be like a two-thirds, one-third for the other team. That's kind of interesting. I, I do wonder if that will work out like that. Is the Oklahoma game the early game or the late game? I do not know. I'm not sure they actually the announced that they actually announced that ahead of time. I'm not. I mean, it'll be the the Oklahoma game will probably be the more prime time game. So it'll probably be depending on how they time it in that region, it could be second. Well, yeah, the Oklahoma game in the first round I know is the first set of games. So I would think there'd be a little bit less of that going on. But in the second game, if it's the later game, I think you could be right there. That's really interesting. And, you know, the fan dynamic is always something that, you know, can get a little bit weird from time to time just because you never know how these teams are going to go. Like, do you think that I'm trying to think, do you think that like Utah will probably have a major advantage in Denver 
But, you know, if Gonzaga's there, will Gonzaga kind of travel a little bit with, and try and, like, make that a little bit better against Utah if they somehow uh, advance against Seton Hall? It's a tough it's a tough dynamic, I agree. And the other part that makes that the pod in Oklahoma City so interesting is that those games that I was talking about, the Oklahoma, the Oklahoma game and the Texas game, they're in the same bracket. So the winners of yeah. those games face each other, which is, uh, I've noticed when I've gone to games, it's a different tactical thing. Like the urgency with which you root for an underdog when your <laughs> team would play them. The, my favorite one with that was when, I think it was Winthrop nearly beat Gonzaga when I was in Tucson. And the crowd just was going insane for it, partially because it was a, it was, I think it was that one that was a UCLA heavy crowd. And even though UCLA ended up losing to Texas Tech, basically everybody was rooting for the underdog. And so you get those 75-25 first-round games where it's like a home game for this 15-seed, 14-seed. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely an interesting dynamic. And I'm pretty excited to see how it all goes, especially once uh, I get to go to games out here in the West once it gets to Anaheim. So that'll be pretty fun. Yeah, which would be the the winner of those games we were just talking about in Oklahoma City. That will be in Anaheim, right? For sure, yeah, it is. I get the West Regional, which is, you know, Oregon and Duke, Texas, Texas A&M, Oklahoma, Oregon State, teams like that. So uh, it could be interesting. could be pretty fun. Yeah, I think that's one that will be more compelling in terms of prospects in the second weekend, which is good for you, because Duke got a pretty – I think they got a pretty soft – from the limited amount that I know, they got a pretty soft bracket. But that, for people like me who haven't watched as much of Brandon Ingram mm-hmm. and the rest of their guys, that's fortunate in a, to a degree. Yeah, I mean, the West Regional overall is by far the weakest, I would say. I, I'm not a fan of it by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think it's, you know, very good talent-wise. You look at the South, like the South has Maryland Cal as your 4-5 with Miami and, like, Villanova. The East has, like, UNC, Indiana, Kentucky. One of Indiana and Kentucky are going to be out by the end of this regional because or by like the end of this weekend because of the way that the tournament was set up the west i think is the least talented region by far as far as an nba draft perspective and as far as duke's perspective goes though duke has an interesting matchup against wilmington in the first round because wilmington does two things that could kind of mess with duke they really pressure the ball well uh that's a kevin that's kevin keats is the coach at uh UNC Wilmington. He's a former Rick Pitino. Well, and that's a VC, <clears throat> VC, when VCU upset Duke, that was a big part of it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, Keats is a former Rick Pitino uh, assistant that took over at Wilmington. He's turned that program around remarkably in two years. It's kind of a situation where those young guards like Luke Kennard and Derek Thornton might get in a little bit of trouble going against them. UNC Wilmington games also tend to be really foul heavy games. In Duke, without a lot of depth, there could be in a little bit of trouble, I would say, because if this gets, you know, pretty dicey with the referees and who knows how these games are going to be refereed in the NCAA tournament with all of these lights on the uh, referees at this point And after a season where they were so maligned for, uh, you know, inconsistent calls, you never know how this is going to go. So uh, I would say that Duke could be in a little bit of trouble there, but uh, the Baylor-Yale game doesn't really scare me much uh, as far as Duke going forward into the West and going forward into uh, a potential situation where they're looking to move into Anaheim against you know one of Oregon or one of you know St. Joe's or Cincinnati. Yeah, and and Duke is another team that, other than their fans, they're booed by everybody else in the arena. So that that's always fun to watch. But something I wanted to ask you. Uh, as somebody who knows this world far better than I, mm-hmm. 
Michigan State is seems to me is pretty widely considered the best of the two seeds. Yes. And Oregon was it basically admittedly the lowest of the ones. I would not agree with that. Oh, you wouldn't? Okay, so would you... I, I would say that based on how the NCAA tournament seeds teams, Virginia probably should not have been a one, and Michigan State should have been a one. Oh, so so then so that answers the question. Basically, so what I was saying is, my thought is the, the strongest two should always be with the weakest one as a way of balancing, kind of rewarding the better one seeds. And is, so you think that happened? See, the, the way that this gets seeded is so weird because I don't think that's what happened. I think that they tried to protect Michigan State and put them in Chicago, right? Because you're actually supposed to protect schools like that have that have seeding, right? Like that are in the top four seeds. You're supposed to protect them and get them closest to uh, where they're supposed to go. The problem with all of this is, is that at the top, the committee screwed this up entirely. They put Kansas in the South instead of the Midwest. You put Virginia in the Midwest instead of the South. If you switch those two, this isn't nearly as bad a situation because there's only a three-mile difference. It's like 548 miles to 545 miles from Chicago to, uh, what is it, Louisville, I guess, is where the South Regional is. For Virginia, though, it's like a crazy difference. It's so much farther to go to, to, go to Chicago than it is to go to Louisville. So if you would have switched those two, you would have done an entirely different seating situation. And if you would have switched Michigan State with Virginia on the top line, you could have, like, there were so many different options you could have done here. You could have just switched Michigan State with Virginia on the top line. Michigan State's the one, and, you know, they're in Chicago. Or you could have switched Kansas to the Midwest and put Virginia on the top line in the south and made this, you know, totally kind of fit a little bit better in a lot of ways. Or you could have just put, you know, Michigan State in the West, I guess, is the worst one seed and put Oregon as the two in the West, and that would have been the four or five that you're talking about. But it's so geographically based as, as opposed to like the S-curve, so to speak, that it's just basically impossible to even guess what the committee was doing. And, and do they have <laughs> to have it so like this year the South winner faces the West winner? Do, can, is that something that they can adjust what, when, the, like, when they're setting the bracket, or would that have potentially been part of the reason is that they wanted to keep Kansas away from UNC? They do the regions by one through four seeds. They seed each of the one seeds. So, like, it was Kansas the one, Oregon was the number four one seed. So Kansas okay. is so, region place Oregon. So, so they could have put Kansas and UNC on opposite sides of the bracket and still fix this regional issue? Yes, okay. they could that's frustrating. It's it's so frustrating. <laughs> all of it, all of it is so frustrating. So, yeah. So so I think where where I want to go from this is Kentucky. They're a team that, as should be commonplace now for NBA centric fans, is they're loaded with potential NBA talent, and they're potentially out the first weekend. But if they make it through, that could be a huge game against North Carolina. But this is a Kentucky team that, well. They're not what they were last year, let's say. There are a lot of guys that are worth watching. Yeah, I, I think they have three first-round picks, to be honest. You look at what they've got, trying to think, you know, off the I, top they of might, head. They might have three lottery picks. They could. I would be surprised if Tyler Eulis jumped into the lottery. I like him that much, where I would say he could be a top 15 pick or top 14 pick, I guess, in theory, is the lottery. Uh, I would be surprised if he ended up leaping up that high, just because I do think the size, to a certain extent, does limit what his perceived upside is. 
So, for instance, you look at you look at Jamal Murray. Let's just start at the top. Jamal Murray has scored 20 points in 12 of his last 13 games. He's shooting an absurd rate from three, shooting an absurd rate from all over the floor since SEC play started. He is one of the best players off of screens in the country, I believe, right now. I think he's scoring at like a 1.2 or 1.3 point per shot clip off of screens uh, because he's so good at setting his feet and, you know, knocking down three-pointers once he gets that quick release off. So uh, I'm a big fan of Murray. I think that that ability off-ball and running around screens is a lot of the reason why you want to have him as an off-ball player in the NBA. There's been some talk of, you know, him playing point guard. I don't think he can defend point guards, and I think you want to take advantage of who his, uh, of what his skills are, basically. I, I really do like him a lot. Eulis is the second guy in the backcourt. He's five-foot-nine, just dynamo that, you know, he's a coach out on the floor. He demands respect every single time he steps on the floor. The biggest thing that he has done this year is he has really improved as a shooter off the dribble. If you're five foot nine, I think that that is the most important skill you can have. And I think you see it with Isaiah Thomas. You have to be able to create your shot off the dribble into the mid range and into the, th- er, from the three point line. Eulis can do that now. He's a terrific passer great assist to turnover ratio. And like I said, he's a coach on the floor that just kind of will demand respect from NBA players early. He's a really, really smart player that every single Kentucky kid that was drafted last year or uh, went to the combine last year was asked, which of these guys was your best teammate? Which one of these guys would you most want to go to war with? Uh, And they all to a man said Tyler Eulis because they just trust Eulis and they trust his ability to lead a team. The third guy is Scalabissier. He's been much better recently. You know, he's starting again. He's knocking down mid-range shots. He's still going to be a first-round pick, but who knows what you're going to get out of him for a night-to-night basis. Euless, his value to me, why I would take him in the lottery, is that you need somebody who can run your offense 48 minutes a game. And so even if he's only playing, this is the same argument I made for campaign to be a lottery pick last year is Mm -hmm. even if he's only playing 15 minutes a game, that's really important to have. And you can look at a team like Brooklyn this year or, you know, basically a third of the league, the Sixers early in the season, that even if he can't progress beyond that, and I think he can, you're getting him on a super cheap contract. And I have a lot of confidence that he can do that minimum. You know, I think his floor is higher than some people think, whereas Scal's floor is crazy. And his ceiling is crazy. And so it's just kind of a different concept of value. And also, Euless, didn't he win SEC Defensive Player of the Year? Uh, he did, yes. Which I, is I insane. Yeah, I would have voted for Alex Caruso. But, you know, what Euless does really well defensively is he knocks teams out of their rhythm. You know, he's able to pick up 40 feet away from the hoop. He's able to kind of recover against guys in a lot of ways. Like, he's so quick, so much heart in a lot of ways. And I know that that's like kind of a intangible that a lot of people don't really want to hear. They think it's very cliche. But, you know, you watch him play and that kid is as physical as anyone out there, despite the fact that he's five foot nine. I don't think that's going to work in uh, the NBA game. I I think that he's probably going to end up being a little bit worse of a defender because if you watch him in the half court, you know, once teams really get into their sets, he's really good at knocking them out beforehand. But once teams get into their sets, it's really difficult for him to, you know, make a difference in a lot of ways. So uh, I am in on Tyler Eulis for a lot of the reasons I've said. I think that he's going to be a guy that really engenders a lot of respect among NBA players. But there's a little bit of a limited upside there, too. He's not the most explosive vertical guy either, like Isaiah Thomas. Yeah, I, I we're on the same page with him. And so 
if you look at where Kentucky, you know, their potential matchups after Stony Brook, they could face Indiana, which I think is expected. That would be compelling. And then North Carolina, I think both of those present different challenges for what Kentucky does well. Man, do I want to see that Indiana game. I really hope Indiana beats Chattanooga because I would love to see Yogi Ferrell and Tyler Eulis play. Those two kids are two of the toughest uh, like kids that you will find in college basketball. They both shoot incredibly well off the dribble. They're both actually pretty good defenders for their size. Farrell is a little bit bigger than Eulis. He's a little bit thicker as well. But having said that, he's strong and he can really get up under guys. I think I might I don't know that I would say he'll have more success in the NBA defensively than Yulis, but I do trust him to have maybe have a little bit more of an impact there because I do think that uh, that strength in his upper body and lower body is really going to help him against bigger, more physical guards in the NBA. What Farrell does so well is he's just such a good shooter off the dribble, such a good uh, distributor. Uh, whenever he's in the pick and roll, he's able to pull up from basically any spot on the floor. Neither he or Eulis are really good finishers around the rim for obvious reasons. But it, it's going to be interesting to see how this entire region works out because, like you said, North Carolina has a has a very strange matchup. Uh, against Providence, I think, because Providence is going to pick and roll them to death if they get past USC, right? North Carolina is not a very good defensive team against the pick and roll because neither Bryce Johnson nor Kennedy Meeks are very good defensive players in the pick and roll. So I actually have Kentucky beating North Carolina for that reason. I think that they're going to be able to kind of get into the lane against North Carolina whenever they want. But uh, North Carolina does have some interesting guys that could make that a really fun game. One thing that strikes me as somebody who hasn't watched much college this year is it seems like, for the most part, of course there are some notable exceptions, some of which we've already discussed, the one and two lines don't have a ton of NBA players on them. That's interesting. Off the top of my head, I would say that you know North Carolina might not have any. Kansas has a few that don't really play all that much or has a few potential ones that don't really play all that much. Oregon has not really many. Virginia might have Brogdon. I think Brogdon could get into the first round by the end of it. Maybe. Michigan State has Denzel Valentine, who will be a first-round pick. And, Deont- and Davis, yeah. Deontay Davis, who will be a first-round pick by, uh, by, I would guess that he will be, either this year or next year. Um, Oklahoma has Buddy Heald. Xavier doesn't really have anyone, and Villanova doesn't really have anyone. So you're right there. I mean, really, only two of these six teams have uh, potential first-round picks. In a lot of ways, it is the year of the senior in uh, college basketball. And I-, I do wonder if I've been underselling the depth of this draft once you get past, like, pick 30 or so. I, I think the middle of this draft, once middle of the first round in this draft, really throughout the entire first round, is really low-level. But I do wonder if we are going to see a little bit more depth because there is there are so many seniors this year that stuck around that maybe some of these guys kind of figure it out. Like Perry Ellis, I can see kind of carving out an NBA role. Can we just make sure that Mahalik actually gets to play? I just want to see him play. It's been <laughs> such a long time. Nate's, Nate, Nate and Mike Schmitz have been hyping this guy for so long, and my access to them has been extremely limited, and I'm getting angry about it. Svee is very good. Svee... Uh, does a lot of bad things on the basketball floor still. He's not like he's not the best defender. He's his jump shot's good now. He still hasn't totally figured out how to get into the lane whenever he's attacking closeouts though. Like he's still really tentative in a lot of ways. He doesn't make quick decisions yet. I think that if he stays next year as well, it would really be beneficial to him. And the funny thing is he'd be like a nineteen year old junior. 
like Chris Dunn is a 22 year old junior this year. So he would be like a 19 year old junior next year, which is just ridiculous in a lot of ways. So I think it could benefit him to stick around and really get, uh, really get solid, uh, in a lot of different ways and just his decision making and continue to put on, uh, some, some muscle mass on his body because he's still relatively skinny. But uh, I think that it could really benefit Kansas to play him because th- that's a lot of w- what I like about Kansas and why Kansas is my pick to win the national title. They can kind of match up with you so many different ways. I mean, they can play two point guards if you're really going to pressure the ball. They can play these two big wings in Wayne Selden and Spee or in, you know, Brandon Green and Spee. They can play big with Carlton Bragg and Perry Ellis and Landon Lucas and Jamari Trailer and Sheck Diallo. Like, they can just kind of match up with you up and down the lineup every single way that you want to play. And there's not really a whole lot of drop off there. So that's why I like Kansas a lot, but I do hope that we get to see speed and some of these other prospects a little bit more than we've seen throughout the year. I will note, uh, not specifically to this year, but as somebody who has watched it, I will never pick a Bill Self team to win a national championship. I will pick them to get close. I will never pick them to win. <laughs> the only time he won was against Calipari, which is another guy I very rarely pick to win a championship. It's fine. Bill Self's a really good coach. <laughs> oh, he's a great coach. He's just, I remember Ben Howland coaching circles around him. Granted, Ben Howland has done that around a lot of people. So I was going to say, Ben Howland's like a really ridiculously good coach that doesn't get nearly the credit that he deserves. But one of the teams that we, I feel like we gave a little bit short shrift to who could be a, a sweet 16 opponent for Kansas is Maryland and Diamond Stone, probable lottery pick. Mellow Trimble. I don't know that he's a probable lottery pick. Okay. And Mellow uh, Trimble's been, con- I've watched a little bit of them last weekend. He's concerning me. Yeah. He's been pretty awful in all honesty, for the last little while here. He's just lost a lot of confidence, it feels like. Like, he doesn't know when to take over and when to, you know, kind of distribute to his teammates in a lot of ways. That's a little bit scary, I think. And and really, I mean, the defense hasn't been great this year. Again, uh, the, the jump shot has failed him in a lot of ways recently. So if he's a guy that's not knocking down jump shots and is a little bit tentative as far as what he's trying to do uh, as far as distributing or scoring, it's hard to find a fit for him in the NBA, right? Because he's not necessarily the quickest guy. He does have some some of that James Harden to his game in a lot of ways where he does that weird stuff with his arms where he like sticks them all the way out and, you know, waits for you to rake across them. Uh, And he gets to the free throw line a lot in that way. But it's not necessarily the most... He's not the easiest projection right now. He'll probably be a guy that I have around the 40 range once I update because I do really have a lot of questions at this point. Diamond Stone, what does Diamond Stone do that you like? I'm very curious. Uh, I, I think for me it's more about what he could end up doing than what he does right now, which is often true. He's still he's, Is he 18 or is he 19 now? I would guess he's 19, but... but- like his ba- his back to the basket game could eventually be could eventually be decent, but yeah, I mean, I I'm somebody who fetishizes rim protecting centers, and I haven't seen him do a whole heck of a lot of that. He's, you know, fine as a rim protector, I guess. He's 19 now. Uh, I mean, he blocks some shots. He's a big body that it, at least makes himself, you know, big around the rim instead of shying away from that but he's one of the worst rebounders in the country on the defensive end. He he has range. Like if you look at, you know, his free throw percentage, it's fine, but he doesn't actually make shots during games. Like he'll take jump shots, but they don't go in because his mechanics get funky whenever he's in the, whenever he's in the run of play offensively, really all he's good for right now 
is getting dump offs or getting offensive rebounds. And that's not my kind of guy as a player. Like I, I don't see the use for him beyond a 20 minute a game role in the NBA. You know what I mean? Like if, if I was drafting someone, I would rather have someone like Denzel Valentine or Torian Prince who you can move, you know, at multiple spots and maybe find more minutes for them, you know, or, or I'm trying to think of, you know, a different guy, maybe. No, Bryce Johnson's not a good example of that because I don't really like him either. Well, so, Paul so, Zipser from Germany is an interesting guy like that. He can play the wing. He's six foot eight. He can play a little bit of the four. I don't know that Zipser is necessarily as talented as Diamond Stone is necessarily. So I, I do have Stone a little bit higher on my board, but like Zipser at least gives you, you know, some versatility up and down the lineup and some athleticism up and down the lineup to where you can see him eventually, you know, providing that kind of versatility to where you can keep him on the floor a lot of the time i don't know how you play diamond stone more than 20 to 25 minutes a game that's a great point and i i, I was really impressed to juxtapose that with a guy another guy we didn't discuss is Jakob pertle who i was very sure. very impressed with against cal against the cal team that maryland might play in the second round yeah no i think that pertle's a guy that you can play a ton of minutes because you can play him uh, at center, and he can do a lot of different stuff. The jump shot has improved. The efficiency has somehow gotten better despite a bigger workload this year. Pick and roll um, defense seems better. Pick and roll defense is better. He protects the rim reasonably well. The thing about Pirtle is, was he a good passer coming into this year? He's improved as a passer. He's just kind of a complete center for the modern NBA in a lot of ways. Like, I do wonder if he's a little bit too post-heavy now. I think that maybe he could do a little bit more in the pick-and-roll offensively, but he has all of the tools to be a really good pick-and-roll offensive player, right? Because he's so mobile, he has really good footwork. Like, you can see how that would translate well, at the very least. So I'm a fan of Pirtle much more than I'm a fan of a guy like Stone because Pirtle does a lot more. He provides a lot more skill all over the floor to me. And if you have if you have another talented center, you can use Pirtle as a really good backup who will eventually replace your starter, which is incredibly valuable when he's on this super cheap rookie scale contract. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like last year, the guy that I compared Pirtle to a lot was like Steven Adams, because I thought that he was an athletic guy that was pretty physical and, you know, he could move, he could do a lot of different stuff like with posting up and playing in the pick and roll. Adams doesn't post up a lot in Oklahoma City's offense, but Adams is kind of stagnated in a lot of ways as a player, which is fine because he's starting caliber center in the NBA, right? Pirtle is still growing. Like he added so much to his game this year. Like he's a guy that Utah legitimately runs offense through. Like he, he's able to pass from the post. He's able to make, create looks for uh, out of double teams. He's able to you know, just do so much now. He can even, like, attack closeouts from the perimeter a little bit with his, you know, improved ball handling ability. It's really impressive to see what he's been able to add in just a year to his game. Yeah, he's he's been really encouraging, and he, he, there's a there's a, a an incredible value to a guy who can just man minutes who's as tall as he is and who is as capable as he is. And that's another – I talked about it with Ulysses with point guards. The other spot that's true is centers. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. Finding guys who can defend the pick and roll and defend the rim and, and also be a, be an efficient finisher on offense and an efficient offensive rebounder on offense, uh, those guys are just incredibly valuable. And guys that, you know, aren't going to turn the ball over either whenever they get the ball in the post or get the ball, you know, out on the perimeter. They're not going to be nervous about, you know, little guards trying to rip the ball from them. They're at least calm and composed. Having guys like that is so invaluable. 
Yeah, I've considered him with the Celtics just with the idea that they could go so many direct different directions, and so you can just say, okay, this guy's going to get 20 to 28 minutes at center or whatever we end up, you know, if we end up trading for Cousins or whatever, if, if they don't get one of the top picks, of course. Yeah, no, he'd be a pretty interesting fit with Cousins, I think, because you wouldn't necessarily have the best spacing, but he's a better, more athletic defender in the pick and roll. Uh, he is... You probably don't want to play them together all that often, but you can probably see them at least like playing in small doses together in like just a, like massive lineups. Yeah, like a stagger plus is the term that I use for it. So it's where you stagger guys, but you can't stagger them enough so you play them together. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting way to put that. I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head in the NBA. My brain is just like so focused on March Madness right now that like my, my brain isn't functioning. That was actually, oh, the stagger plus is what the Rockets should have done with, with Ty Lawson and James Harden. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, that's a really good example of that. Play Beverly and, you know, Lawson at the point next to, next to Harden and then kind of, you know, whichever one's working better at that night, you kind of, you kind of go with the stagger plus situation where you want to make sure you always have one of Harden and Lawson on the floor, but without them, it kind of, you can make sure that it works. Oh, and the other stagger plus is, of course, what what they should, what Oklahoma City should do with Westbrook and Durant. That's probably the, to me, one of the more classic ones. Though they're not as they're not positionally touching. It's just with usage. Yes, absolutely. That's another very good example of that. I would say. Right now, of course, you're setting, you're working through it for your column. But at this moment in time, before the next moment in time, what does your top five board look like? Um, I, do you want to go five to one or one to five? We'll Whatever five. dealer's choice, man. <laughs> we'll still, we'll go one. We'll go five to one. I do have, uh, Jakob Pertl at five. Nice. I have Jalen Brown at four. Kristan is at six, by the way. Like, it's not like I'm off on Kristan. Like, I don't have, I really do like Kristan a lot. It's just like, if you look at this draft board, the way it's going to work out, there, there isn't a whole lot of need for point guard. I, number three, I have Dragon Bender. I, I've talked to a lot of people who think he could fall like into the middle of the lottery if he comes out this year because there is some uncertainty about his contract. And simply a lot of scouts haven't really gotten a chance to see him play real minutes over at Maccabi because, you know, they go over and they do these trips. And sometimes Bender, you know, the, the coach can play Bender a lot. They're playing a team where... He can, you know, really get a lot of minutes and a lot of time to shine. But, you know, a lot of the time they can't, you know, because they're in the Maccabi's in the middle of a EuroLeague championship race where they're trying to really uh, lock down a title and they can't really afford to let this 17 year old kid or 18 year old kid now really get time to develop. So it's going to be interesting to see what he does. It wouldn't surprise me if he pulled out of this draft. Just because guys haven't gotten a chance, not enough guys have gotten a chance to see him, I think. And they've watched a lot of tape, but these scouts don't feel really confident in Euro guys until they really just sit down and get a chance to see them. You know what I mean? Yeah, he would be crazy young in this class. Cause, so he's November of 97, and the rule is that you have to you have to turn 19. I believe you have to turn 19 by the end of the year you're drafted. Right. So he would be almost the youngest guy possible in the draft under the current rules. Yes, absolutely. That's but, what makes me think that, like, it's possible that he doesn't I, – I don't have any inside information on that, but, like, having talked to, you know, people around the league, you know, there's a – his stock around the league from what I've learned, and maybe this is just scouts trying to hide him or, like – theoretically think they're hiding him and try and like drive his stock down a little bit maybe but like genuinely i've heard some people say that like yeah like end of the lottery you know sounds about right for him and i'm just like what (laughs) 
Like it's it's just shocking to me when I hear that. But uh, he's he's a really talented kid that might end up staying over there. And uh, you know, before I get to my number one and number two, who who do you have right now in the Simmons Ingram race? I think it's team dependent to a degree, but I would have. I would have Ingram just because he's more versatile. When Ben Simmons is on your team, you're going to have to structure everything around him, and I think that that can be worth it, of course, in specific circumstances, and there are teams and spots where I would definitely do that. Mm-hmm. But if you have things a little bit more together, especially if you have somebody who's already good enough to run your offense, Simmons is a really good player, but he's not a sure thing. Like The, the analogy I might make, and this is going to be weird to a lot of people, is Russell Westbrook. And so I knew Russell Westbrook really well because I went to school with him and all that. I wasn't sure that he could run an offense. So what I what it was was you want the right circumstance around him and where you can grow into it, and if he blows up, you can do it. Oklahoma City was perfect for that. Simmons needs something different, but the idea is that he's so good that it'll probably work, but I'm not sold on it. So he's still worth taking high, but that uncertainty pushes him below Ingram, who is a lower ceiling, higher floor type guy who is, as we talked about before with, you know, Denzel Valentine and guys like that, who you can you can just throw him onto, like, all of these bottom five teams, and he'll make them better. Right, yeah, I think that the biggest the biggest thing with Simmons is going to be team interviews. Yeah. Well, he needs to show these teams that, you know, they're taking a kid that they can trust to continue to grow and develop and not stagnate uh, as a player, because right now he could play in an NBA game and be fine. Like, I have no doubt about that, but can he grow into being a star in the NBA? I have concerns. I think he probably will be, you know, a really, really good player, but I'm not as sold on Brandon Ingram as a lot of people are either. Me neither. I'm not either. I think that he is a really intriguing player in that he's, you know, six foot nine, six foot ten with a seven three wingspan. He can shoot the ball and, you know, he's a fighter. Like, like if you've seen what he's been able to do at that size, rebounding the ball, for instance, like he's a guy that's really going to fight for boards on the glass. He's a guy that's really going to get down and uh, care defensively, but he's not. The sneaky thing is he's not that good of an athlete yet. Like, it's possible that as he continues to put on muscle mass and continues to age because he's so young right now, he's over a year younger than Simmons, there's a chance that as he continues to put on muscle mass, continues to put on weight, that he can unlock some explosiveness. But I think the sneaky thing right now is that he's really not that good of an athlete. Yeah, like, it's it's hard to imagine for me, uh, it's hard to imagine a circumstance where Ingram is the best player on a conference finals team. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Like, I've... The comparison that I've made, like, whenever whenever I've talked to scouts is, and he's better than this, don't get me wrong, like, he is, but, like, athletically, I wonder if there's, like, a little bit of an Otto Porter thing going on there, where you think he's a little bit more athletic than he is because he's so long, like, he, he can kind of explode up and, you know, have his whole, like, arm above, like, his whole elbow above the rim, but it's not because he's explosive, it's because he's just so tall and so long, it's it's kind of an interesting dynamic to try and figure out, right? Like he's not a guy that's going to be jumping 40 inches. I don't think he's a guy that's probably going to be like a solid athlete, uh, like not a bad athlete by any means. Like he's not Paul George though. I don't think either athletically Uh, having said all of this though, you know, we're watching what's happening with Giannis in the NBA right now. Like he's just been unbelievable for the last month. That's a fair statement, right? Yeah, I I think it is. So like, but here, here's what I would say about Giannis, okay. though. I'm sorry to cut you off. The biggest question about Giannis coming into the draft is, is he a good, good enough athlete? Yeah. Right? 
Like that, that was the biggest question. Well, that, know? yeah, that, you know, that, and will he be able to put everything together? Like, will he be able to elevate his aggregate package enough to be a worthwhile player, which is what the ball handling, the point Giannis has really done. And I'm concerned about Ingram being able to generate his own offense, but sure. at the same point, I'm concerned about that with every guy in this class. Like that's like, so what I was going to lead into you with you is this, I'm pretty confident that if they were, you know, knowing what we knew then about both guys that I, I would have Ingram meaningfully below Jabari Parker, but Jabari, there isn't a Jabari Parker in this class. Would I have Ingram below Jabari Parker? That's a good question. There were some concerns about Parker's body coming into the draft. He is, you know, a little bit bigger of a guy, a little bit thicker of a guy. He's not as tall as Ingram. Uh, doesn't have the wingspan Ingram does. I want to say Parker's is right around seven foot exactly. But Parker is undeniably more skilled than Ingram. Parker is kind of if you meshed Brandon Ingram and Ben Simmons together in a lot of ways, right? Don't you think? I can see some of that. Yeah. Like the transition stuff that Parker did, the ability to shoot the ball, but like not like an insane athlete, but a good explosive athlete nonetheless. I would probably agree with you. I think that I would take Parker over both of these guys. And I would take Wiggins over both those guys. I would have taken, and I had Exum because I'm an Exum homer. I had Exum above both of them. So, but I mean, that's the way the draft is. You have to take who's yeah. available. And I would probably take Wiggins over both of these guys too. That's a tougher one though. I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, like I have Wiggins over Parker, but like, it's so tough that there, these guys are all in that tier though. Like yeah. you're talking more like Wiggins. Yeah. They're not in the, the they're not in the town's tier though. Like that's no, I mean, he, he was a, he was a mile above, and that's that's great. You know, it's it's nice to have those guys, and this class doesn't, and that's the way it happens sometimes. Yeah, no, I mean, there's like tiers like Towns and Davis, and what Odin and Durant were, and what Yao was, and what uh, what LeBron was. He's not that. Like Ben Simmons is not that. He, the fact that, and I think that part of the reason that he's not that is that a he's not that skilled, and, and that's fine. That's not a that's not disparaging towards him. He's just not that skilled. He's not he's not all time skilled like those guys were. But he's also yeah. the athletic part is the bigger concern for me. Like he's not he's not that guy that you just sit there and go, Oh my god, how is he doing this? And that's okay. You know, there are going- Um I get pretty jaw dropped by what he can do like body control wise and fluidity wise at his size. Yeah, but like but you compare that to let's say what Giannis is doing now. Like I, I th- of course that's like comparing him to the guy who's called the Greek freak, but I, I think that Simmons, especially with having a little bit of a shorter reach, he, he's very good. Like, but when LeBron, those type of guys, like to me, to me, to be in that group, to be in that group, you have to have either a like mega elite skill level and mega elite ath- or athleticism, and the other one has to be really high too. Yeah, and I don't think he's like a mega elite athlete. Don't get me wrong, but like the body control, the fluidity. The, he's a somewhat explosive athlete. He's not like an amazingly explosive athlete, but he, he's a relatively explosive athlete. He's a much better athlete than Ingram, I think. It's there to me. And part of it, I think that, I think we kind of forget about a lot of the stuff that he was able to do this season athletically. Like there was that one like ridiculous reverse slam this year. I forget who it was against, but like he went like under the rim and just like somehow elevated and brought the ball like, back over his head and just like slammed it and shoved it through the rim. Like it was unbelievable. Like some of the stuff that he's able to do like off the bounce, just with quickness and with fluidity and with uh, like an agility level and his body control. It's, 
it's preternatural in a lot of ways. Like it's unbelievable in a lot of ways. Yeah. He's not the most explosive vertical athlete, but I really do think that we undersell him a little bit athletically based on non-traditional athletic measures. Like he's not, he's not a guy that's going to elevate like to a LeBron level. He's not a guy that's going to elevate like Wiggins, but he is a guy that just does have so many other athletic skills in a lot of ways that I think that it does get undersold a little bit. Now, he's also not as long as those guys either, and that can lead to trying to think of what the term would be. Well, his The way sm- that you use your athleticism. In yes, a lot he has smaller functional size. So yeah. when you have a smaller functional size, you can't use it the same way. But like you're right. There's a... That's something that has been frustrating as somebody who's covered Stephen Curry his entire NBA career. And people are like, oh, you know, something about his athleticism. He is a really good athlete in an entirely different way that is still being a good athlete. You right. know, his, his, his hand-eye control, his body control, his vision, the, all that stuff is athletic. That's not, you know, it's it's not, his instincts are great too, but that's separate. But it's, you know, this, it's physical, it's physical ability rather than athleticism. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's what. Simmons has now again he doesn't have the massive you know wingspan I think it's like 6'11 it's 6'9 6'11 wingspan you can still do a lot but again this is where interviews are going to be so important to him because he stagnated this year he he wasted a year I was actually texting with our buddy Mike Schmitz a couple days ago and you look at what happened with him this year I don't even like I think to an extent yeah maybe the ESPN stuff got in his head where uh and you know I don't mean to call out another like media company by any means but like it it was a hype machine that kind of you know never ended right like they were trying to hype him to go to the NCAA tournament after they lost in the SEC tournament I mean that was crazy like Sean Farnham god love him I love Sean to death. He lives in Studio City, like right around the corner from me. Sean goes, wait, you're talking LSU? Like getting into the NCAA tournament? Like he laughed at them whenever they asked him that on TV. I do think that the hype machine kind of, you know, maybe got in his head a little bit. But, you know, the problem was that he got enabled by that staff so much. Like he basically chose that team. He basically got to do whatever he wanted. There was no recourse for whenever he didn't care defensively. There was no recourse for whenever he was going around trying to pad his stats. I mean, he needs to convince teams that he's willing to listen to coaching, willing to really buckle down and try and improve his game because he is the exact same player he was coming into college. None of the like problems that we've seen from Ben Simmons are new. Like These are all things that you know, could have, or really did, not just could have, really did prop up like at Hoop Summit or past events before that. These are all not new things. What he needs to do now is he needs to show these teams, I am willing to listen to whoever you put in front of me. I know that they want what's best for me. I will fix it. Yeah, that's a, a good way of putting it. Like, what I think what's concerned me is that like he you has... Look at, you look at what Brandon Ingram did this year. Yeah. Ingram got so much better by going to Duke. That's what's, that's what's made him, you know, in this argument. He is not, it's not that Ben Simmons got worse. It's that Ben Simmons is the same guy, whereas Ingram is a different guy. Ingram is tougher. He is a little bit more skilled off the dribble. He is, you know, uh, he's, uh, he's just uh, rounded out his game in meaningful ways that Simmons hasn't. And, and so you, you hope that you can, that you can do that, but it's, 
it really imp- shocking to see, and it, it does happen. It's not like he's the first guy ever to do this. To see an 18-year-old guy who doesn't look a lot better than what you know we saw at the Hoop Summit, because that's that's a time when guys are really going to grow, and you know some sure. some that that can happen. You know, especially especially when you're in a situation where you're where you, you might not be enabling it. But at the same time, when you have all the kind of incentive that he has to just you know to do whatever you can to maximize your your draft stock and all that. And he hasn't hurt himself really too much. You know, even if he falls to number two, that's not going to hurt his bottom line very much, even from it, from a shoe perspective, I wouldn't even think. And it'll, so, so it, it is, cons- but it's well, he, he's going to sign, he's going to sign with clutch sports. So he's going to be fine. Sure. Yeah, he'll be fine. Exactly. So it, it's just concerning because you want to see guys that age get better. You know, I get worried when I see a 23 year old who doesn't look better the next season than he did for, you know, at the beginning of the, you know, like a year apart, that's concerning to me at that age. And when you're 18, you should be getting a whole heck of a lot better. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And you know, it's kind of the same thing that we've seen with Scal Labissier this year. Labissier has gotten, better, I think, throughout the year, genuinely. I mean, we, we haven't gotten to see it, but I would be surprised if, you know, Labissier is not a better player than when he went to Kentucky. We haven't gotten to see it, but, you know, he's he's clearly getting tougher. He's getting, you know, more more physical in his game. Like, he's not afraid of contact anymore. He's a, a more more decisive, this is terrible English, what I'm about to pull out, but he's a more decisive decision maker. (laughs) But like, there are meaningful things that we just haven't seen yet. He clearly, I think, is going to have gotten better from his time. With Simmons, I don't think that Ben Simmons has done a single thing to improve his stock this year. And I think that that lays somewhat at his feet because he's the one that made the decision to go to LSU. Uh, he's the one that, you know, made the decision to be with his godfather and go to a coach that, for lack of a better term, is n- not very good. And he's not going to necessarily develop his talent all that much. So I think that the blame lays at the feet of Simmons. It lays at the feet of that staff for not improving him. And and I think that there uh, are a lot of tangible things that he's going to need to prove to scouts before going and being this first overall or second overall pick. I don't really have anything to add to that. Two quick things to end on. Well, we'll see if they're quick. A player that you think of that's maybe under the NBA radar that will be a lot more known two weeks from now. Um... uh... I still think Tyler Eulis is under the radar yeah. too much. Like, I think we, we won't talk about him necessarily. I think he's a first-round pick. I don't think that enough people have him as that uh, as that type of talent. I Diallo? do think that Diallo's possible. Um, I just don't know that he'll play enough to do this. The guy that I think is really going to burst out is Isaiah Whitehead. Um, it would not surprise me. You know, he's a guy that I don't even know if like, like NBA draft people have him in the first round right now. I know that I personally do read draft express and I look to see what, you know, John and Mike are doing a lot of the time. If I'm not like writing a scouting report that day. And I didn't see Isaiah Whitehead on either John's 2016 or 20 or 2017 NBA draft board. I do think that by the end of this tournament, we're going to think of Isaiah Whitehead as like, should he turn pro or should he 
stay and potentially be a lottery pick in 2017. Like, I think he is that talented to do that right now. I'm trying to think. Ben Bentel, if Providence can go on a little bit of a run. Bentel is just a really interesting guy that I don't think a lot of people have high enough necessarily. As far as I'm trying to go through and maybe think of like people that I have on my board that maybe some others don't. Um, I think I think Grayson Allen could go on a, could go on a rise just because people will fall in love with the positives in his game. Yeah, no, Grayson's the guy that's going to go in the first round. I think whenever he kind of decides, whenever he decides to come out, he'll go in the first round. I think because someone's going to fall in love with him. Let me let me go through here. If Miami can make a little bit of a run, maybe Sheldon McClellan. Mm. Uh, he's a he's a really if he wasn't twenty three years old, I think we would talk about him a lot more as a prospect because. McClellan is a really good defensive player, a really good shooter who went something like 50-42 and like 84 or something this year. And he can actually do a little bit off the dribble. He's, he's a really good athlete who can finish around the rim, an explosive athlete. He has relatively good length. Like, he has a lot of what you're looking for in a role-playing NBA wing. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if he ended up being uh, a little bit higher by the time th- this next week turns around. Is there anyone that interests you? In that area, I, I I'm not super. I'm I'm more frustrated that some of those guys aren't going to be in the tournament. Just with, <laughs> with the, you know, like like Zimmerman, sure, and and you know, and all those type of guys. But yeah, Zimmerman's a really interesting one because Zimmerman, I think, has he's going to be a guy that's going to have to pass medicals before he his stock really takes off. I think because there are some concerns there. I, I want to propose that we can put all those random French bigs. They should all just get to be on on NCAA tournament teams so we can watch them just for just for like two games. Let's be like, I mean, here you go, Cornelly. Just just go on one of these teams and we can watch you. The problem with that would be they're all so skinny. Yeah, like they're all super skilled. But like, you know, Jonathan John, you throw him in a college basketball game right now and probably not end well. Yeah, and, and I mean that's part of the reason that. You know, he, he is, you know, a really skilled guy, but it's part of the reason that I know that Jonathan Gavoni went over there and talked to all three of them, you know, Cornelly, Jean, and uh, Yusufa Fall. And, you know, Cornelly and, uh, Cornelly and Fall said they're going to declare for the draft, but Jean isn't sure yet because Jean still has uh, so much growth to do in his game that I don't know that that would work well if you put them in the tournament. Oh, I forgot to mention that one of my crazy Dragon Bender hyp- hypotheticals is that he falls to Toronto, which would just be insane because Toronto has the Knicks pick, probably the Knicks Denver yeah. pick. That would be insane. They would love him. They, yeah. they would absolutely love him. And even him if there. he has to wait a year while they're a more of a short-term team because Kyle Lowry is going to be on an expiring contract, that would just be – I think that would be a really nice fit. I mean, I don't think Masai would have a problem with leaving him over there for a year either. I don't either. So, uh, no, I, I don't think that would be a problem at all. I think that that would be fine. I, uh, I'm trying to think of some other guys, though, that could really step up and have – Big, Brogdon? big tournaments. It's yeah, Brogdon's a guy that I think already is like right around that first round. Though I have yeah. him at I have him at thirty three right now on my board. That might be a little bit low, honestly. I think that some people have him in the first round already. Did I, did I read that? I think John had him in the first round, right? Well, Good yeah, but that, but you can still you can still jump from there. I mean, you can. Well, jump. the thing is, I don't know that he'll jump past like end of the first round level. Yeah, twenty five. He he's really not a good athlete like explosiveness wise or like he's a relatively quick athlete, but it's more that his reaction time is just so impeccable. And he is such, such an incredibly skilled player with 
uh, like his work ethic and, and the way that he has just kind of developed, like even the smallest things in the way that he like comes off of a curl into the mid range at the elbow. And then the way he takes these like kind of, I don't want to say it's like herky jerky, but it's, it, it's like a step off of rhythm jump shot. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And the biggest thing with Brogdon is as well, you know, like he shot 40% from three over the last, uh, t- in two of the last three years, he shot over 40% from three, but there are still some questions about how his shot's going to translate to the next level as well. And I don't really think those are going to go away over the next three weeks. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good point. We'll we'll end on this, what you're leaning for for your final four, and I think you already said your national champion. Yes, I have Kansas, Oklahoma. Who, who do I have? I have Kentucky coming out of the East, actually. And then I have, do I have Virginia or Michigan State? I think I have Virginia, actually. I think Virginia gets a little bit of revenge on Izzo for knocking them out, I think, in each of the last two years. And then, yes, I have Kansas winning over, I think, Virginia in the title game. Over but, the winner uh, of that game, regardless. Yeah, no, I have Kansas. I picked Kansas, Kansas at the beginning of the season, and genuinely... I haven't seen anything to dissuade me from that, so to speak. They've just been awesome throughout the year. And, you know, this is just a really deep team that, like I said, they can match up with you in so many different ways. Is there a chance we get a Kansas-Oklahoma Final Four game? Yes. That would be crazy. I would love it. I I think it would be terrific. That game earlier in the year, both their games really were just totally remarkable events. They were awesome. And I, I would be excited to see that. I would really, really enjoy it. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Always great to talk to you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Anytime, Danny. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time. You can read him at CBS Sports at cbssports.com. I believe all of his stuff is on their college basketball page. And I think even, I'm not completely sure with his NBA draft work, but I'm sure you can find it from there. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. And really love talking with him. And this is going to be a a different tournament for me because I've watched a lot less of college basketball this year due to my obligations with my writing outlets and with Dunked On and everything else. And also it being just a not great college year in terms of what I look for as somebody who's been NBA focused for the last couple years. But that's the way it is sometimes. Still watched a fair amount of Simmons, a little bit of Ingram and Cal because they're nearby. I actually went to a couple of their games. So always exciting. The tournament as much as I do not want it for the NBA, it is wonderful to have it in a different league and to be able to have that experience. There will also be, it's not even remotely a companion to this, but there will be a second NCAA tournament podcast. My sister is a marine biologist and she hates sports, but she loves thinking about these abstractions. So for about 10 years now, we've done a mascot bracket. So it's if those mascots got in a fight is the general way that I like to pitch it to her. And we go through the entire thing that actually was recorded while I were, you know, in between spots when I was editing this. So it will be up at some point during the day tomorrow. So that on some point during the day on Wednesday, this will go up on Tuesday evening Pacific time. So if you have any comments, you can reach out to me, Danny LaRue on Twitter, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also hit me up my email address is MBA at gmail.com. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. I'm busy, so I can't promise it. But I do I do read everything. And so, you know, sometimes it takes the takes time to respond. So I, I can't make that promise, but I will make the reading promise because I don't want you to waste your time. And I, I would feel really bad about that. 
Also, I have a Facebook page, which is also Danny LaRue MBA, that combines all of my writing and podcasting. And so if you ever want to know things, I try to put things up quickly, though. I admit that I generally don't post things on Facebook at night. I, if people have feedback that they'd rather just have it up there as soon as it goes, you know, if we release a dunked on at midnight, if some people would rather have it, have it up there, then let me know. That's something I just, I just don't really know how people consume that. I've always assumed it's more with the feed. It's, you know, when it pops in live. So that's why I generally release stuff during the main part of the day. Also, I do an, an, a weekly email digest, so that's my own pieces, my own podcasts, and then recommendations. One of those for this week will definitely be Lee Jenkins' excellent piece on Kawhi Leonard, which I highly recommend you read if you have not already. And if you've read it already, you can read it again if you want. It's, it's really, really good. Also, I wrote a book review for The Sporting News on Jonathan Abrams' fantastic new book, Boys Among Men, which is about the guys who went preps to pros. From, you know, Kevin Garnett all the way through to LeBron James and everybody a little bit after that, Dwight Howard, went until, the you know, that pipeline stopped. And it's great. It, it made me think a lot about that time, which was so important for my basketball watching. And it's full of stories that I never knew. And he is one of my favorite writers, so it's not surprising that the book is great. So between those two things, that'll give you more than enough. And I think it was just released. Yeah, it was released today. I was fortunate enough to get an advanced copy. So I was, I'm actually done with it, but it, it is great. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. A Napa guy knows the only way you'd give a freshly minted driver a brand new car is if he promises to never drive it. Instead, let him grind the gears and knock over the neighbor's mailbox in something a little more suited to his skill level. And with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, he can safely drive something that's nearly as old as he is. It's not perfect, but it's perfect for him. That's Napa know-how. Hey, it's Flo, and this is my impression of a drill instructor directing a musical. Get those tap heels in line and let me see those jazz hands. Are you bundling your home and auto insurance through Progressive? Can you hear me through those sequins? Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save. Left, left, left and step ball change. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates. Home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers.